0: This is Speaking Freely with the ACLU of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Hoover, your host and director of communications at the ACLU of PA. This is part two of our discussion about cash bail. And in this episode, we hear from Alex Domingos of ACLU PA and the Dolphin County Bail Fund and Michelle Batt of the Lancaster Bail Fund. Alex and Michelle explain what a bail fund is and what role it plays in the work to end pretrial detention. As an activist in Lancaster County, Michelle also explains the impact that ACLUPA's lawsuit against the county over its cash bail practices has had and how grassroots advocates have been arguing for the same reforms for over a year. Learn more about the Dolphin County Bail Fund at DolphinCountyBailFund.org and the Lancaster Bail Fund at LancasterBailFund.org. This conversation was recorded on May 11th. Well, Alex and Michelle, thank you for joining me. Alex Domingos is a senior organizer with the ACLU of Pennsylvania and founding director of the Dolphin County Bail Fund. And Michelle Batt is a founder of the Lancaster Bail Fund. It's great to have both of you here to talk about this issue. And I wanted to just start by asking you how you got involved, like what inspired you to be involved in the bail issue? Why have you been involved in activism? Um, Michelle, why don't you go first?
1: Thanks. So, actually, I stumbled into um, becoming activated, so to speak. I was drinking the Kool Aid of the system for a very long time. I was a public defender of seven years, and um, somewhere around the summer of 2020, between you know the response or lack thereof of the judiciary to the emergency of COVID, and um, you know all the the the, the protests in the social uprising um, after the murder of George Floyd, I started to really believe that I was part of the problem. uh, Whereas I always kind of thought that I was part of the, you know, the good guys. Um, But the fact that I was, you know, drawing a paycheck from this unjustifiable system and showing up every day to justify it um, by my presence uh, kind of made me sick after a while. And I quit in April of 2021. Uh, I wanted to use my knowledge for good, right, because I have very hyper-specific knowledge about how criminal law works in Pennsylvania, but in Lancaster County specifically. Uh, So in talking with several uh, community members and organizations, I heard that there was a, um, you know, desire to have a bail fund here locally. So, um, I thought, you know, easy enough, I can do that. Um, and so the Lancaster County bail fund was born about this time last year, actually.
0: Wow. That's, that's quite a story. I, all right. Well, thanks for that. Uh, Alex, what about you? How did you, I, I mean, I, you've worked with the ACLU for a number of years now, like curious to hear more specifically about the start of Dolphin County bail fund while you got involved.
2: Yeah, sure. So, um, Maybe around twenty fourteen ish or twenty fifteen here in Harrisburg, I joined a group called the Stops Today Harrisburg, um, and at that time we were focused on a lot of um, you know police accountability type work. Um, I was part of a working group that was um, working on a proposal for a. Uh, civilian complaint review board for um, body cam review policy, right, and um, sort of advocating for um, those sort of methods and um, actually a, a sort of a good friend and mentor of mine. It was the, that weekend when um, Alton Sterling and Philando Castile were murdered, like back to back, um, and we, I remember, like, walking around the city and was talking about how, like, You know, the limits of reform and reformist reforms and how the combination of sort of the inadequacy of those policies of effectuating real change, as well as the, you know, full court press backlash of um, system actors to even those sort of modest, um, ultimately rather ineffectual reforms, how that combination met that, you know, those focusing on those issues where it was maybe not necessarily the best use of time so um actually through like the media and social media i became aware of our now colleagues and friends um in philadelphia uh doing their mother's day bailout um and that was just really inspiring and that was sort of a catalyst for us to um start thinking about bail funds as a, as a tactic. So um, that sort of spurred us to start the long road to, uh, you know, researching and learning and um, ultimately deciding to start a bail fund here in Dauphin County.
0: And you mentioned Philadelphia. There are a number of bail funds around the state, two in Philly, Dauphin, Lancaster, at least one in Allegheny. And I thought I had heard that there was talk about starting one in Lehigh as well. Um, did I name them all? Or are there others that I missed?
2: Um, Montco, Montgomery County oh, Montgomery, has one okay. as well. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I believe, I don't know if I'm breaking news, but I, I believe Erie is either considering or they, they may be official now, but um, yeah, there's lots of bail fund activity here in Pennsylvania.
0: Okay. So with that in mind, Alex, why don't you explain what a bail fund is? How does it function and how does it operate?
2: Yeah, sure. So um, I'll start by saying, you know, bail funds have a long history in the country and as well as in Pennsylvania. Um, You know, even the ACLU as far back as 1920 um, operated a bail fund at the height of the Red Scare. Um, And at its core, very simply, a bail fund is just a collection of money either raised by a person or a group of people such as faith groups or other sort of community groups um, in order to post bail or bond um, on behalf of an individual or a group of people. So each bail fund operates a little differently. Um, They each have their own referral processes, fundraising sources, um, criteria, target areas. And, you know, whether they focused on immigration or criminal or whether specifically around a particular protest, Um, but we all focus on pretrial detention. Um, And we all, um, at least in the contemporary context, operate in opposition to the profit model of the insurance industry that operates the commercial bail bonds industry. Um, Yeah.
0: So I've talked with Nisa. uh, Oh, Michelle, did you want to chime in there? Yeah. Okay. Um, So I've talked with Nisa about our recently filed lawsuit against Lancaster County over bail practices there. And the Lancaster Bail Fund has been very active in advocating for reform in the county. Uh, Michelle, you wrote in an op-ed this week on uh, Lancaster Online that there's no reason the county had to expose itself to a lawsuit. But now that the ACLU has sued, county leaders can get ahead of this issue. They can implement the measures we've been requesting and demonstrate their commitment to due process, equal protection, and the Sixth Amendment. What have you been advocating for, and how have stakeholders in Lancaster County responded?
1: Thank you for that question. So um, our requests over the last year uh, have solidified. And when I say our requests, it's not just the the bail fund making these requests. We've been very intentional about building community collaboration to kind of get a critical mass of people repeating the same message over and over again. So we were able to pack the uh, March prison board meeting to standing room only, um, you know, uh, utilizing many uh, people, faith community here in Lancaster, we've got a really robust faith community. Um, so when I say our requests, it's really more broadly than the bail fund. Um, I've been happy to work with Power Interfaith, for instance, here. Um, but They have, our requests have solidified to four main ones. And the first two I'll list, I believe have really been like go hand in hand with what the ACLU is suing Lancaster over. So our first request is that the county provide representation for people that are uh, facing arraignment. Okay. That I came to learn recently is actually a constitutional right. Uh, it, um, In 2008, actually, the U.S. Supreme Court decided Roth, Gary V. Gillespie, saying that the Sixth Amendment right to counsel attaches at your first appearance before a magistrate if your liberty is subject to deprivation. So if the judge thinks or knows that they want to like throw you in jail pre-trial, it's <laughs> legally constitutionally required that they provide uh, representation. Um, but that is not done in Lancaster. It's actually not done throughout the state uh, regularly. Um, Montgomery County has made very uh, impressive and laudable strides towards providing this sort of representation in the last couple of years. Um, I believe Lehigh makes um, an attempt uh, Philadelphia does as well but I, I don't think that any county necessarily does do full coverage and if I'm wrong I'm you know happy to uh, correct myself on that. Um, so that that was our first request um, because you know and, and we really do think that that's like one of the most important ones recidivism reduces when someone has a, an active like advocate standing there next to them um, your 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 time spent pre-trial incarceration right now in Lancaster County, if you're incarcerated in lieu of bail, you're going to wait at least two weeks to see another judge to speak with an attorney for your first time. That is unacceptable um, because, you know, it doesn't take more than two days really to lose a job. Um, and then, you know, everything down spiral from there: housing, loss of custody of your children, et cetera. Um, and that is specifically one of the uh, rec- the demands now, I guess, that the ACLU has in in its lawsuit that Lancaster County provide this representation. The second thing that we've been asking, which also I believe dovetails with what the ACLU has in its suit is that the magisterial district judges be required to fill out a form when they are setting bail. So under the rules of criminal procedure, the judges in setting bail which by the way, bail doesn't always mean cash bail. It can mean release on your own recognizance or um, unsecured bail, something that is, does not require you to put up any money and does not require you to be incarcerated. Um, but the rules require that when the judges are setting bail, they kind of go through this sliding scale, right? Starting with the least restrictive type of bail is ROR going to be sufficient to you know, make sure that this person comes back to court? If not, okay, then what about unsecured bail? No, you don't think unsecured bail is sufficient? Okay, well, what about cash bail? Okay, if you think cash bail is really necessary, what about a 10% bail instead of like a full straight bail? And so on and so forth. And then with respect to cash bail, the judges are also supposed to take into consideration somebody's financial condition so that the bail amount that is set is not excessive. Um, as I'm, I just got a call earlier today from a gentleman that's been incarcerated in the Lancaster County prison for seven months uh, in lieu of $1 million bail. This is not an individual that was named in the ACLU suit. This is this is just normal <laughs> uh, practice in Lancaster County. Apparently it's not hard to find examples like this. Um, so we, the hearing at which bail is set is largely closed to the public. There is, there is, And there is no record made of it. There's not a transcriptionist there taking notes. So there is no way for the public to ensure that the MDJs are following the law. And similarly, there's no way to hold the MDJs accountable. So we thought that if they were required to fill out a form, this would help bridge the gap a little bit. And it also, why I said dovetails with some one of the um, issues raised in the ACLU suit is because the ACLU alleges that the Lancaster County judges are not following the law when they're setting bail, that they're not going through this um, sliding scale and they're not taking into consideration someone's financial condition. So if we had a form then um, where they could document what they were doing and what they considered when setting bail, that would obviously make it easier to determine whether or not the MDJs are following the law. The other two requests um, are a little bit more creative. One, we, well, data. We want data. Uh, the Lancaster County prison, we call it a prison, but it's a jail. They do not disaggregate the data that they provide to the public. They publish monthly the average daily population and the average daily Population who were serving sentences, and then the average daily population that are pre trial, but they do not disaggregate it any further. I know that two days ago there were 799 people incarcerated, and 562 of those were pre trial, but we don't know were there 562 people charged with homicide in Lancaster County? Well, then if so, then everything's perfectly fine and working as it should be. Um, but We they don't disaggregate that data any further. So we can't determine like, what is the main driving factor of pretrial incarceration here in this county, which I believe is very important because us like very many other people, right now counties across the nation across Pennsylvania, are talking about building a new jail. Um, So I wanna make sure that they don't build a bigger one. Um, And I hope that the data would help us guide that advocacy on that front. And the fourth thing we requested of them was that they reinstitute something that they had done here uh, starting in 2013, but ceased doing at the end of 2019. Uh, They started, what's called a commitment review panel, the county stakeholders did. So every week, The judge, the president, judge, a representative from the district attorney's office, the public defender's office, the jail, and maybe others like probation and bail administration would sit around a table and review literally every file of every person that has been committed in the last week. And even they would identify people that they don't believe should have been in jail. And so by doing that, they were able to shorten the average period of time that people spent in pre-trial incarcerated and, and release a lot of people lowering the jail population numbers. Um, there's obviously, there's no there's no political will for that, but I think it's very unique because the fact that they did do that at one time demonstrates that there is the law and there is like the, the interpretation of law In practice, can basically be whatever you want it to be. (laughs) If there's political will to lower the jail population, they will come up with creative ways to do it. This is not something that is written in the law. It's not something that says you can do or you can't do. They just got together and they decided, isn't this a good idea? And they started doing it. The reason why they started doing it is because they were extremely overpopulated at the time. So it was really self-serving in a way because, you know, they want to avoid lawsuits and that sort of thing. Um so far our like I said in my op ed, uh, the responses from our county leaders have been what you would expect they deflected, they avoid um, the meetings that we have been able to get uh, have not been fruitful and um, and a lot of them are just pointing their fingers in this, you know, other direction. So like, you know, the judge will say, well, this isn't my problem. This is a commissioner problem. And the commissioner problem, well, this is a court problem, you know? Yeah. Um, or, you know, talk to the public defender's office and see what they need. And they say, well, we don't need anything. We're good. We just throw us in there. We got this. We don't need extra funding. We don't need extra positions. But it's the judges that have to figure out how they're going to arrange preliminary arraignments so we can staff attorneys there. The district judges won't meet with us. You know, the DA won't meet with us. So it's a lot of avoiding deflection and and it's just really frustrating and I cannot tell you how happy I am that the ACLU has come to I you know add a little bit extra umph to this fight
0: (laughs) well we know that on so many of these issues including this one there are always people on the ground doing the work and you know we always we tip our hat and we 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 stay in our lane and do what we can, but we're really grateful for all the work that you all are doing too. Um, Michelle, I want to ask you an unscripted question. So if you want to cut this, it's completely fine. Um, But when you were talking about representation, and then at the end there, you were talking about the public defender. When you talked at the beginning, you mentioned something about quitting the public defender's office because you felt like you were part of the problem, which was a quite a statement i was absorbing that while you were talking about representation and about the public defender could you say a little bit about that because you're right that people the public defenders are generally viewed as the good guys i think we all see them that way but you quit for a reason
1: i did quit for a reason it was something that someone said at one of the george floyd protests, honestly, that grew in me over time, which is, you know, you might, you white people might be here, you know, for us physically showing support today, but tomorrow you're going to go back to your jobs, drawing a paycheck from very systems that oppress us. And, you know, I don't think that it's a coincidence that public defender jobs are, um, plenty, (laughs) plentiful. And, um, because, while I did feel as though I was able to make a difference in the lives of some people, you are never going to successfully litigate your way out of mass incarceration problem. Mm. It is set up to fail, especially in PA when we're under fund. I mean, we're the only state that doesn't have a state funding. Um, and. I mean, representation at the preliminary arraignment is a great example of one of the very many systemic problems that I started to see piling up that I could do nothing about. You know, by the time I met my clients for the very first time, it was two weeks after they had already been like kidnapped, Mm. separated from their families. And I was too entrenched in the norms of the system to care Honestly, I didn't want to hear what, like how you were arrested, you know, about like who can feed your cats while you're in jail. And I was overworked. So when I quit, I had 120 cases. Wow. Um, Like, how can you effectively represent 120 people at one time? You can't. So you get impatient. You do try, you do start to like, you know, like get impatient with people, force pleas on people. And even when you're not, even when you're your best advocate, you are still operating in a system that is set up for you to fail. Um, from the from the very beginning and there's just no bottom to that work pile. I could have stayed and done that job until I was 73 years old and I would have never have gotten anywhere. You're just churning the the wheels and I I want to I want to stop the wheels from turning. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I want. <laughs>
0: Well, that probably segues well then to my next question. And Alex, I wanted to ask you about this. What is the theory of change here? And what's the role of a bail fund in creating a culture where things are done differently? Sure. Well, as I
2: mentioned in the start, you know, there's a diversity of goals and theories of change among the bail funds across the nation. Um, I'm very proud that Dolphin County Bail Fund is a part of the National Bail Fund Network. And I feel that um, fundamentally across the network, for the most part, we are abolitionists and our goal is bringing about the end of pretrial detention, like full stop. Um, And we believe that caging our loved ones and neighbors pretrial has failed to bring about community safety. Um, We believe that our existence as bail phones and as a network and our work proves that our safety as a community is not dependent on the carceral solutions that are often sold to us and, and forced upon us. And through our work and our advocacy, we hope to bring about um, the future where, as a society, we no longer rely on those carceral solutions as sort of our first and only solutions. Um, We also emphasize that we're working to make our existence obsolete. Um, So in that sense, um, we are simply a tactic um, in the service of abolishing pretrial detention. Like we're not a charity in the traditional sense that we don't make sort of exist, perpetuate our own existence. Um, And the moment that we become a cog or we find that our work perpetuates the system of pretrial detention, we no longer need to and um, no longer should exist. Um, So we try to uh, build that willpower by continuing our work, by organizing with and being led by people that have experienced pretrial detention um, and elevating and highlighting the realities of what it's really like inside of our county jails, um, which, you know, most lay people don't get to experience or ever hear about. Uh, And through... This work, we hope to prove to legislators um, and their constituents that, you know, we as communities keep ourselves safe. Like cages don't keep us safe, um, and we will build the power to ultimately achieve that goal. and sort of ironically, you know, we operate within the logic of the criminal legal system. So, as um, our colleagues here at the ACLU like to point out, um, and I, a point that I think is not well understood in like the media or just in the general um, sort of zeitgeist or consciousness is that bail is a mechanism for release. Um, if you are assigned cash bail or any type of bail, that means the system has decided that you are eligible to be released. It's just either money or circumstances or what have you that's keeping you in prison. So we are only operating within the system that, um, that they have set up right and we're operating on sort of this fundamental american value that um you know so we so often use as a cudgel uh of like innocent until proven guilty right so by the own logic that um system holders have set up that's that's the, um, the logic we operate within well that gets to the
0: oh go ahead michelle
1: I was just going to dovetail off of that and just um, point out how, even though we operate within the confines of the system, it is surprising how unwelcome, <laughs> unwelcome the intervention of bail funds actually are, which raises the question uh, Are you even intending, like, you know, are we playing on the same level, like, field here? Because there's these sets of rules we're operating under it, but you seem to get angry when we, like, uh follow the rules and like post cash bail for people that's what it's supposed that's how it's supposed to work
0: oh um, well, and that's right that's why there's legislation in the general assembly right now that would uh pass the house that would require bail funds to meet the same licensing requirements as bail bondsmen
2: and, and that's why I described it as a cudgel, right? It's like this ideal that we're sort of force fed as part of the like, you know, American nationalism, right? That we're the best country in the world. We have all these values. But whenever, you know, we operate within those values right? and we're we're the ones upholding what they're actually supposed to mean. Um, and yet we become enemies, Um Because I I would argue that they're not actually sincerely held beliefs, Um, especially for black and brown people, especially for low income people, um, especially for immigrants. Right. Um, We operate in the the criminal bail system, but there's a whole network of immigration bond funds as well. Um, There's folks that are on. probation and parole community supervision right that have detainers that are not even eligible to be bailed out so there are these sort of multi-layered systems that sort of um belie the message that we're sort of told the fairy tale version of america so i, I find that to be very interesting hmm
0: well, this, these last couple of minutes answer the policy, the ultimate underlying policy question I want to ask both of you, which I'll, I have to ask it, which straight up should cash bail be abolished? And the answer is clearly right here from what you just said.
2: <laughs> Well, I'll, I'll tweak it, I guess. I'll, I'll say, you know, as I mentioned, uh, dog County Bail Fund, we believe a pretrial detention should no longer exist. Mm-hmm. Um, so of course, I don't believe that wealth or as I mentioned, immigration status or uh, by virtue of being on community supervision should determine a human's pretrial freedom. Um, it's not as simple as, si- as simply saying cash bail shouldn't exist because we need to know what the system will replace it with, right? So like right. in a post-cash bail world, Are there entire categories of people that are then condemned to languish pre-trial because they're excluded from whatever bail reform has been passed? Um, Are racial disparities maintained, um, Mm -hmm. like, for example, in New Jersey? um, where, you know, population may have fallen, but racial disparities still persist, have those racial disparities worsened. Um, so, it, you know, I, I, I find myself saying this a lot in our work, that it's complicated and nuanced, um, but we think ultimately the system of pretrial detention um, should not exist innocent should until proven guilty, right? Should, if, if that's the rules you all have set up, then that's the rules um, you should abide, abide by. hmm
1: hmm. Although well, Ncash cash and- bill makes a nice hashtag, you know, but it's 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 complicated.
0: Yes, this is the debate that goes on uh, within our offices and on conference calls about uh, wh- what exactly to say, because we understand that, as Alex said, it's, it's complicated and what comes after could be just as problematic when you start getting into using algorithms and right. which is yes, bad data exactly. in and bad mm-hmm. results out, mm-hmm. um, which may
1: yeah, just lead so. to
2: more pretrial detention. Exactly. So yeah. abolish cash bail, abolish pretrial detention, abolish immigration detention, yes. abolish detainers, abolish risk assessment tools.
1: Yes. It's, a,
2: it's a long bumper sticker, but yeah. <laughs> Um, Michelle, I wanted
0: to ask you a little bit about the human cost here. You were a public defender. You're running the bail fund. Um, You did mention a little while ago about, you know, a person being kidnapped for two weeks, essentially. Can you say a little bit about some of the human impact that you've seen?
1: Yeah, thank you. So I like to say when people ask me, you know, oh, you're a public defender. How is that? You know, whatever you have to defend those people or whatever that I, I've never met a criminal, uh, except for maybe if you talk about the people on the bench, uh, or in the office. Um, but I, I've, I've literally never met a criminal. I have met people accused of things. I've met people that have maybe done things, but like everyone that I have ever met, I have never in seven years as a public defender, I have never been, you know, in, in a situation where I, where I was like, I cannot do this job. I cannot represent this person. Um, everyone is worthy of redemption. Everyone is worthy of a second chance. Um, you know, when, when people think about the negative impacts of, uh, you know, pre-trial detention, it, they can kind of whitewash it to talk about, well, what about those cases where people are like actually innocent? And that does happen. It's frustrating to see, you know, I, I want one of my first very big jury trial victories was an arson case. And my client was incarcerated pre-trial for, you know, some amount of time. I forget now it's been a while. And he, you know, I, I won and I had a, a news news People there at the end, like getting a quote from me, like asking me, Well, what what's gonna happen? Will your client get time served? And I'm like, No, he's <laughs> he's going home. <laughs> like he doesn't get anything. It's, he doesn't even get an apology. Like his, his his life is ruined. And and I mean that that happens all the time. Like one of my one a case that I had during the pandemic. Older gentleman, 60 years old, uh, black, prior history of incarceration, like all these things that like made his um, chance of uh, fatality higher during the pandemic. He was incarcerated in lieu of bail for like a gun case. There was like a highly illegal search that revealed this gun, but still, you know, he's bad. He's got a record. He had a gun, all this stuff. So they kept him in jail. 14 months later, the district attorney decides that I'm right and just drops his case. So so like there there's, you know, there's there's that way of looking at it. But there's also, you know. People can experience even people that may have shoplifted, you know, that pack of cigarettes or done whatever, like even those people, oh, there's video evidence of him walking out of the store with the cigarettes. I don't care. Like we had, the, the, we had a gentleman that we bailed out in, in the bail fund that actually, unfortunately, passed a couple days after we posted his bail. He was in his sixties. He was alleged to have stolen a pack of cigarettes. Did he? I have no idea, but I know that like, that's not a death sentence. You know, he was, um, uh, very ill, when the police came to enforce the warrant, there were, there's medical equipment all over the place. They should have known, right? And you can't provide a perfect continuity of care to someone, I don't care, you know, how good of a contract you have with a private medical provider. You're never going to be able to provide a seamless continuity of care to someone going through the trauma, you know, not not to mention the trauma of being incarcerated pre pretrial. Um, So I just there's there are like like Alex said, one of the goals is to elevate the stories of the people that suffer these very, very real injustices like and it happens literally every day Um, if it happens to you you can't talk about it because you're, you know, you're an other, right? You're a criminal. We're not going to listen to you. Sure. It didn't go that way. I'm sure the cop didn't mean it like that or the judge, you probably misheard her or something. No, (laughs) these, these injustices are inflicted literally every day in your backyard. I don't know where you live, but it's happening in your backyard. Um, and, and elevating these stories is really one of the, um, main objectives, uh, because data only tells so much.
2: And if I can hop onto that too, there's like the individual harms, right. But then there's the, the societal community level harms. So like, I think COVID has been a really good example, right. Um, prisons were, and jails were among the biggest hotspots, um, of COVID, right. Um, the facilities themselves are not safe and profound harms happen within the walls of county jails. Dauphin County Prison in particular has a, a shockingly horrible um, history of, of deaths um, that mm-hmm. happen in the prison of... Um, COVID spread, right? Of uh, um, so the facilities themselves are not safe. And there's, I'm sure the same isn't as true in Lancaster. There's, and Andy, you know, living in the area, you know, there's neighborhoods in Harrisburg that my entire life have never been deemed to be safe, right? As our prison population rises and falls and we condemn more and more people to mm-hmm. enter these cages it doesn't actually make our community safe so i feel like a lot of times district attorneys um and uh like actors in the criminal legal system sort of have this monopoly on being able to to det- Declare what makes us safe, but yeah, yeah. if if the facility you run isn't even safe, how can you claim to be creating community safety if the same neighborhoods year after year after year are deemed to be unsafe? And those are the neighborhoods where you're funneling people into these cages, but it's not making them any safer. How can you then have the monopoly on that when you when you're instead just creating vast harms um, that ripple out past? whether it's two weeks, whether it's months, we've seen people incarcerated pre-trial for upwards of a year, um, again, especially over COVID as the courts shut down, right? Um, so there's sort of the individual harms that, uh, as Michelle mentioned, happen literally every single day. There's countless stories. Um, there's also sort of the community level harms that not only are the are these carceral systems not making us safe yes. and in lots of ways they're making us more unsafe and they're creating um vast harms that you know are are too vast to even discuss on just on this call right i'm sure okay. you'd have to compile every episode of this podcast as sort of to reach every single facet of the criminal legal system and the, and the harms it perpetuates in our communities.
1: Yeah. But we should, we should be reappropriating the, um, we should appropriate the dialogue of public safety because it is objectively now there's, you know, research and, and data coming out that like pre-trial incarceration might not, you know, cause us to be any safe whatsoever. It could actually be having the opposite effect. And it's like, Mind-blowing how, you know, people don't see that, right, um, because of course it is. If you're going to take someone out of their lives, they're going to lose their job, experience, you know, instability there uh, with housing, with, you know, everything else in life. How, how do you, how do you if, if public safety is the goal, you know, we're, we're failing. We've got high rates of recidivism here. Um, you know, we um got to take back that narrative and start <laughs> start talking about pretrial freedom as a public safety measure.
0: <laughs> yeah, there's a lot to be said right now about the way people are talking about public safety and crime. Um it's a great challenge for advocates and activists, and a challenge for communications folks and anybody who wants to be involved in this because. We're just having the wrong conversations in a lot of ways and blaming the wrong people and the wrong policies like you see in new york for example where bail reform has been demonized and and blamed for things that it really is not it's not the reasons why there have been spikes in criminal activity are not related to these reforms i mean that's that's me very very slightly skimming the surface there's obviously a lot more to be said about that um By definition, a bail fund needs support. It's money in and money out. Um, So Michelle, if folks are interested in the Lancaster Bail Fund, where can they go to find more information?
1: Yeah, we are LancasterBailFund.org, very simple address. And you can donate on our website there. And also please follow us on the socials. We've got the links to all of them on our website.
0: And Alice, what about the Dolphin County Bail Fund? Where can folks find
2: information? Uh, we're at dolphincountybailfund.org. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Uh, yeah, so please feel free to donate or volunteer um, or get show up to the Dauphin County Prison Board of Inspectors meetings um, or pay attention to your district attorney's race and ask them about cash bail when they're asking for your vote. Um, any, there's a lots of different ways for people to plug in um, for the, the fight for pretrial freedom. Um, so always feel free to reach out to us. Uh, we can definitely point you in whatever direction, um, you feel like, uh, you're capable of helping them.
0: It sounds great. Well, thank you both. And thank you for your great work. It's, it's inspiring.
2: Thank you. Thanks, Andy.
0: Thank you again to Alex Domingos of ACLUPA and the Dolphin County Bail Fund and Michelle Batt of Lancaster Bail Fund. Links to the bail fund's websites and Michelle's LNP op-ed are in the show notes. That brings episode 74 to a close. The audio editor of Speaking Freely is Freddie Foulet, and our video editor is Cambria Lee. Our music is from bensound.com. The executive director of the ACLU of Pennsylvania is Reggie Shuford. I'm Andy Hoover, the host, writer, and director of this podcast. Until next time, be healthy and be free.